we have some recap and some unfinished business in chapter 6. Um, but we'll do that after we just quickly, 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 quickly remind ourselves of what it is that Jeremiah has been saying to us and building, um, well, a really, a really solid understanding of what the book of Jeremiah is all about. Um, some of us are probably not as familiar with that as others. And so laying this foundation for Jeremiah. They have not listened to me is the message and the word of the Lord. This We can't turn a page without seeing this. And it's very plain that this has led to so many problems, but especially just that they've really gotten to the point where they don't even know who the Lord is and what he really desires and what he's really all about. They show that very plainly. But then God's promise is that they will know him. They will know me, declares the Lord. And that has to do with knowing who God really is, his essential character. The, the two-part character that also has a covenant, the aspect of covenant keeping, he, is the, he, he shows loyal love to all people. But in terms of this sort of two-part character that we see back and forth, so, in, so to speak, that he is the God who is slow to anger and who stands ready to uh, show forgiveness and show mercy. And even at this late hour with rebellious people, he's still reaching to them, calling out to them, saying, if you'll turn there is mercy, there's restoration, all of these things. But, as we had said, he's also, well, you tell me. What is the other part of his character that can't be ignored? His justice. And what does his justice demand? Yeah. It demands that he visits the, the wickedness um, irrespective of where he finds it? And should he not punish a nation when he finds them to be like these? Well, that's what we're seeing. In terms of Jeremiah's message, it's a message of, of judgment, but also a message of hope. And we'll keep trying as best we can to point to those areas where there's hope. Bill Bain pointed out to me, this is, this is really heavy. <laughs> and he's right. And, I, you know, I want to be sensitive to that idea and maybe um, do our best to balance what is a balanced message that God wants them to see the hope that he offers and that he points to. There, are, there was a people that he had planted, but they've turned out to be a worthless tree. And this, it, tonight in our reading, if we, uh, Lord willing, this all goes well, an olive tree that should have, should have been, oh, just wonderful and beautiful. But it's tur it turned out to be worthless. And so you already know what he's going to have to do with this worthless thing that he had planted. It's going to be uprooted. He had built up a people and caused them to be built up in, in the land that he had given them. And this city turned out to be worthless and corrupt and just absolutely full of evil. And so the city and, and its inhabitants are going to be torn down. But then in the message of hope, there's a planting and a building up to come. That's all we'll say about that for the time being. You'll remember last time that we were seeing this imagery. We'll keep seeing it. 
of uh, God's people being portrayed as this woman, not generally in very flattering terms, kind of some, some unsavory ways that she is depicted. And it comes to the point where he says the, the hard truth is that they're facing a menace and a destroyer that will have no mercy um, unless, unless they're able to uh, find it in themselves to turn. But the, the sad part of all of this is that when we get to the, especially the second part of chapter 6, we'll just do this very quickly, very briefly. Um, I don't know how you feel about week old leftovers, <laughs> um, but these ones are, were, were really good the first time around, and so uh, let's, let's catch up with this before we go on to chapter 7 and a really significant text. What we find at the end of chapter 6 is Jeremiah is not finding people who are willing to listen, and so there's no audience for him. In chapter 2, verse 1, there's a very interesting expression. He was told to speak in the ears of the people. Like, there's no excuse for them not to hear. If you walk up to somebody and in a loud enough voice, in a loud enough voice, you speak into their ears, how could they fail to hear you? And quite a picture there. And yet, these ones aren't hearing. And this is the result of their closed ears in verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed. And it says they cannot listen. Who cannot listen? People who've chosen not to listen. Um, Even so, God knows um, that he intends to keep, keep speaking to them and keep calling out to them. But what he finds in verse 13 is from the top to the bottom. You remember we looked for a man. Is there a man maybe among the rich and the religious and the right? Well, we don't have the righteous ones. We're looking for a man that does justice and loves righteousness. Can't find him among those. Can't find him among the poor. And all of them in verse 13 From the least of them to the greatest, everyone's greedy for gain, everyone deals falsely. In verse 14, there's this message that gives Jeremiah a lot of trouble because he's telling them, there's trouble coming your way, but the, but the, everyone knows there's peace. We're going to have peace. We have a lot more to say about that this, um, this week. But it recalls chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. They lied about the Lord and said, Not he, misfortune will not come upon us, and we will not see sword or famine. The prophets are like wind, just just blowing uh, smoke. To be frank, if they are saying peace, peace, when there is no peace, that's kind of like when Satan said, You surely shall not die when you surely shall die, when the Lord said you will surely die in the day that you eat. And so... Um, Well, that shows their alignment. Now, the the reason they were unwilling to listen is because they had a taste for only one kind of message. And it's this. It's this, tell us something that's pleasant to hear. Tell us that there will be peace. Well, the only solution, the only solution to this problem is going to be that they're going to stop asking for pleasant words like um, we've seen so far. Stop asking for this false comfort. 
Because that's not, that's not going to do them any good. And start asking for the good way, what is true and what is good. And that's verse 16. The Lord says, I'm prescribing this. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And that would be rest. But they've, they've refused to do this. And um, it doesn't surprise us to read in verse 19. They're receiving disaster because they have not listened to my words. As for my law, they have rejected it also. In verse 20, there's this talk of kind of these religious offerings that they might be doing. Can they buy God's favor with religious acts? Well, let's expand on this in chapter 7, but plainly, no. Uh, Not when their hearts are so far from him. Well, quickly, you might want to say something about chapter 6 before we go on. Something that was significant or needs to be said before we go on. In Yes. When you were talking about the peace, peace, but there is no peace, that reminded me of really what Paul talked to Timothy about in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, talking about the time that People are not going to endure sound doctrine. They're going to want their ears tickled. Yeah. Uh, and so it's that same concept. So Absolutely. that's something that we need to watch out for ourselves, that we don't say peace, peace when everything's falling apart. Yeah. The, the true message might be unpleasant, but um, it's the only thing that will do us any good. Had no desire for the word of the Lord, the way that is good, or the warning of the watchman. And so um, they ended up in this. This really terrible situation. Now, um, we get to chapter, we're coming to chapter 7 now. A section that we're going to have to put together as uh, chapter 7 through 10. This is known to Bible students as the occasion where Jeremiah is standing in front of the temple. And you might think that this can be the only place where there might be some positive message. In fact, there's, there's, it's nothing like that. It still is, in fact, very much at the very beginning of this Jeremiah's um, work among the people. Right there at the beginning of the, uh, well, the 13th year of the reign of uh, Josiah. And so even though this is lined up over here, uh, this is actually trying to show that all of this is happening all there at the very end. But this is still at the, um, still early on in, in Jeremiah's words. And the Lord will send him to speak uh, these words in right at the right at the temple. There, let's let's summarize and see what it is we're going to find. You you know because you read this. I know because I studied this, and you'll find this as we go throughout the the whole message. So these um, what are that four four chapters where he addresses them at the temple. I would say these, these few things. The, their idolatry is really right in God's face. And especially if you find it in his own house. And so I'm saying idolatry brings God's indignation. Now, he does say that if they're willing to amend their ways, that there's mercy for them. Um, but... Jeremiah, again, he's not getting the audience, the audience that's willing to listen whatsoever. And I'm using the words mindless madness to describe the state of the people. It's, It's hard to fathom how they've gotten to this place. And they're acting in ways that you think this is just 
they, they're out of their minds. Um, what we're going to see as we come to chapter 9 is that this message really, really begins to weigh very heavily on Jeremiah. And uh, you, we know him as the weeping prophet. And you see just all throughout this, as he's having to deliver this message, it's, it's a, it is plainly a, a struggle for him. Now, even in spite of everything he said, and, the, and really the, the uh, negative outlook and the pessimistic outlook toward whether they're willing to listen, if they will, if they'll listen, if they'll heed, if they're willing to turn and choose to walk in God's ways, well... That's a still a way that they can be uh, saved. The, the last part of this is going to be just really, well, it's, it's one of the kinds of things that's humorous if it weren't so just inexplicable. Uh, idolatry, and what does that look like? Well, it's, uh, it's really, really wild. Two more things that you won't see up here. There are common threads that kind of are woven throughout this. And so you might look for these. I throw them in um, free of charge. There's this idea that, was, that came up in chapter 6 that God was going to make Jeremiah like an assayer, uh, this tester of metal. And the idea is that God intends to refine them like you would these, this, this raw metal. Is there anything worthwhile in this? Or by the time you uh, apply some heat, is it all just going to burn up and there, there really was nothing there? And then we'll come to chapter 9, and God will say, there's impurity in this silver, and the fire keeps burning, but God is still trying to refine them before he just decides that we have to dump this out and there's no Nothing worth saving. And then we'll see too, uh, throughout this, this idea of water and poisoned water. And I find this interesting because in chapter 9, verse 15, God says, I'm going to give them poisoned water to drink. And you think, what is this about? That's a really, really a strange thing to, to say. And in chapter 8, verse 14, they are acknowledging that God has given them poisoned water. And they're saying, they're acting almost as though this is unjust of God to be doing this. They're kind of suggesting that. But if you rewind all the way back to chapter 2, you'll remember that God pointed out that they had committed, you remember this, two evils. They had forsaken, do you remember? What had they forsaken? This is chapter 2, verse 13, if you are going there. Yeah. How did God picture himself? What was the, what's, the, what's the image there? Yeah, so the fountain. Fountain of living waters. And they decided they didn't want any part of that, which is um, obviously very strange. And what they'd chosen instead was to go to great lengths to hew out, it says, cisterns. Okay, we're trying to hold some water, but they're broken, and they don't hold water, and what little they hold is... Is terrible. And so they chose to abandon the living water fountain. And this is the result. God merely just withdraws his goodness. If you don't want that fountain in those waters, I'll withdraw that. And all you'll be left with is the natural result, which is these, these uh, poisoned waters. Well, maybe you'll see that as we go throughout. Um, let's uh, get into chapter 7. 
the, the key thought really is right there at the beginning. Thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 3, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you live in this place. And so the, this is really um, quite hopeful. And you imagine this, this seems like such a small thing to ask. Just acknowledge as chapter, oh boy, chapter 3 had said, just acknowledge your sin and turn to me. And he's willing to uh, allow them to go on living in the land. But they've become deceived. They, they think this is, uh, well, they don't, they don't see the need to amend their ways. And what you find in verse 4 is a warning from Jeremiah. Do not trust in the deceptive words. There's a very common message going around among the people from the leaders and evidently even among them, deceptive words. And this is what they are. And you are likely very familiar with this. This is iconic. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Do not trust in deceitful words. In verse 8, you are trusting in deceitful words to no avail. And so I think Jeremiah is trying to communicate that there is a, they have a false sense of security. Let's explore how this came about. I think I have an idea. Maybe you have um, a different idea. But in trying to unravel this and try to get a sense of why they thought that the temple could somehow protect them from the kind of calamity that Jeremiah is talking about. I think it's related to what we had read in chapter 3. Let's kind of summarize that. In chapter 3, Israel, so that's Judah's northern neighbors, right? They were idolaters and God overthrew them. Threw them out of their land. And if your neighbor gets evicted from their house in, full, in your full view, surely that's going to leave an impact. So why didn't it leave an impact with them? Why, why didn't they, you know, take heed to this? We, they didn't in chapter 3. It said they didn't learn. They didn't and didn't turn. And I think this, the, the problem is based maybe in in maybe three areas. First of all, I think there was this false presumption that they had that they actually weren't like Israel at all. And I, I think that, that would explain it. Th this is how that goes. So when the, when the nation split, just as a recap, Judah is the territory where Jerusalem is and still with the temple. And the northern kingdom, well, their first king didn't want the people going down to Jerusalem for worship, right? And so you know this very well, that he set up two places of worship, purely idolatrous worship, as far as I know, in Dan and in Bethel. Bethel, by the way, meaning, tell me, house of God. And, but, th but this is a false house of God. That's not a true place of worship. And I think it would have been easy for Israel to look at, Ju uh, for Judah to look at Israel and say, oh, yeah. They were idolaters. Now, we have the house of God, and we're still, we still, you know, carry out religious practices there. And sure, God would be perfectly happy to overthrow them. But look, we're still here, and they're gone. And so I think they have, um, they came to the wrong conclusion that when Israel was carried away, and they survived, that they're safe. And... 
I, I think this is based in a, a, a couple ideas. I think they developed a, a sort of national pride and this sort of identity that we're the ones where Jerusalem and the true throne should be and the one where the true house of worship, not that false house of worship, the true house of God is. And I, I, I think this developed for them, a sort of national pride. And all of that, when that's the undercurrent, I think that led to this prevailing opinion that um, we're the ones that have the house of God, and I think it's being widely circulated. Everybody's assuring each other. Even Jeremiah calls them deceptive words, but this, these are, it was very common for them to be telling each other that God would favor them because of their association with the temple. What do you think? Does that seem to explain why they thought the temple was, could protect them? I mean, evidently, they've, they've been safe so far, even when a very powerful kingdom has come knocking next door. Maybe you have some other thoughts. If so, you can share those. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me go to Alan real quick, and then I'll get you, Mitch. The other kingdom not only knocked on the neighbor's door, that other kingdom came into their house in the past too and took their king for a while. It, 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 the Assyrians take Manasseh about 70 years ago for a while, but he humbles himself, the scripture tells us, and he gets to come home. And you wonder if, mm. if those people might have had the same temptation we can have when we are doing wrong and we're facing the consequences of that and we and we ask for mercy from God, and he gives it, and then we say, okay, it, everything's fine again. Never, never mind, I don't need to change anything. Yeah. Crisis averted. Yeah. It, the scripture is clear that Manasseh seemed to have been changed by that, but the people clearly were not. They, I think they see him come home mm -hmm. and don't seem to have any kind of feeling that anything weird happened, and maybe that Israel got stuck up there, but our king came back, so we must be favored in some way. Yeah, fairly cheap repentance and, and easy to see that they they were willing to turn back and, and go their own way again. I mean, even the, the current king at the time, uh, when the law was read, he, he tore his clothes and, and mourned because of the acknowledgement of the sin. But then when he confronts the people with that same thing, he makes them follow the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, right. It's not a, you know, okay, everybody is handing in their idols and destroying them of their own accord. No, it's, it's Josiah going with the army and making them do these things. And so I think that's why you see like in, in chapter six, where they say, you know, God says, you're not ashamed and they're not, you know, Josiah destroys all the idols, but they're not weeping and mourning because of the sin they've committed. They're just following what the king says. So they don't face the punishment of the king. Right. And so in some way, that actually goes hand in hand with what Alan said. If there's no heat on them, uh, why then what, what's the incentive to, to, um, to go in the way that the prophets encourage them? Da I think Danny was maybe going to say something as well. Uh, I think they also had the false prophets and the priest that were telling them that things are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. So a lot, in a lot of respects, Jeremiah, there were other true prophets also, but in a lot of respects, he was alone. 
Yeah, how, how does that one voice um, make any progress when there's the overwhelming um, tenor of the day and and all of the people that were, all of the religious leaders leading them astray, that's uh, plainly is going to get them in into a very bad situation. So Jeremiah says that uh, this is their false trust and they're deeply deceived in this. You're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. And Listen to verses 9 and 10, and, and, and let's just judge here. Let's just judge. Do, how, how can they think that they're going to receive favor from God just because of some association with the temple when they're going to steal, murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you've not known, and then come in before me, God says, in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered. As though God should show them any favor whatsoever. They're unfaithful to him. They're polluting his very house with idolatry. And God is trying to reason with them to see that it is not so that they can, well, that they're going to um, be delivered uh, in this way. No number of sacrifices can be pleasing to God. Isaiah 1 verse 11 would say, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Why are you coming to this house? You know, Malachi will say, you know, I'd really rather somebody close the doors. <laughs> Why are you bringing these sacrifices? They're doing absolutely um, no good. God is further angry because they've made this into a family affair, and even, they've even corrupted their children in this. In verse 18, you'll see that the children gather wood. Everybody has their part. The fathers kindle the fire, and then the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they're pouring out libations to other gods in order to spite me. And so their children get corrupted. Later on, their children are actually getting sacrificed, which is almost too difficult to even talk about. Um, but they're burning their sons and daughters in the fire, which God, in the biggest understatement in the book, says, never came into my mind. And, um, and so very, very, a very dark, um, time among the people. What is so remarkable is in spite of all of this, and this is the direction these people have been going for a long time in verse 25, God is still reaching out to them. Absolutely remarkable. Here's what that looks like. Since the day that your fathers came up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, I've sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising early and sending them. And, um, and Jeremiah is just the latest in a long line of spokesmen for God. Yet it says in verse 26, yet they did not listen to me nor incline their ear, but stiffened their necks and did more evil in, uh, than their fathers. And so... We're seeing the same thing over again. They, they have not listened to him. In terms of defending that this is so remarkable, I, I, think of, I think of maybe our situation sometimes. When there's somebody we would like to influence, somebody we'd like to really make some efforts with, and so one day you go and you, you have a very good talk with them, and both of you come away from that with something, something to consider. The next day you revisit it. Now, you may get through to this person, uh, but you may not. And sometimes you, you, what you are going to find is, well, I'm not making any progress. And after some time, I think I know what all of you will do. And I, I know what I'm likely to do when you're continuing to reach out 
and but, but you're not making any progress. I think all of us are probably going to have to come to the point to, where we can acknowledge that this is a lost cause. And what I find so remarkable about this is that, um, by my reckoning, God has been calling out to them for something like 700 years, and it's a daily occurrence. He's daily rising early, <laughs> getting up early in the morning. First thing he has to do, and all he has to do is go call out to his people, send, some, send another one to go call out to his people and try to, uh, get, try, to, try to cause them to listen. And so I ask, what does it reveal about God that he's sending Jeremiah to persuade people that in verse 27, he knows won't listen to him. So just reading 27, and you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. So there's somebody we would like to make progress with, but somehow we're like God and we, we, we can look ahead and know you, you're, you're not going to make an inch of ground with this person. What would our reaction be? I don't know, but I'm, and, and we're never going to be in that situation. We just have, we have to make our best efforts, but God knows. What does it say about the character of God that he's still reaching out to them? It's a it's somewhat rhetorical question, but you may have something to say to that. I just, I just find it very remarkable that God is this, this merciful toward, toward these ones. When you get down to the end of this chapter, there is a lot about bones being carried out, and this is, well, uh, a pretty plain way to say that there are many people going to be dying, the dead bodies are now just going to be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. He says something that in every decade, he's going to repeat, in every decade of Jeremiah's work uh, among the people, in verse 34, he will say, then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy, voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land will become a ruin. And so all of these joyful sounds are going away. We're in chapter 9. We'll skip it because we're talking about it now. Verses 17, verse 20, he's going to say in, in place of gladness and mirth, they're going to have to teach each other songs of mourning. In place of wedding songs, they're going to have to learn wailing. At the same time, though, if we look forward, if we peek forward to chapter 31, this, this difficult message is balanced by this message of God's mercy. Because in Jeremiah 31, verse 13, there's future joy coming for them. And so he says, Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. And so, uh, a message of future hope and joy. Uh, lovely to see in, in, the, uh, in the midst of all of everything else we're seeing. What would you like to say about chapter 7 before we go on to chapter 8? <clears throat> yeah. We see that verse uh, 34 in a lot of the ap apocalyptic literature, and it's, <clears throat> it's a departure of God. Without God, there's no joy. Without God, there's no peace. There's no 
none of the normal mm -hmm. enjoyment of life. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's just painting a dark picture as it always does uh, to those nations that choose to do what they do mm -hmm. and just ignore him. Yeah. yeah, God is the source of all goodness. Chapter 10 will say that he's their inheritance. He's everything that they should value. Yeah. Um, I think there's some principles here in in Jeremiah 7. I think primarily, I mean, you can say the fact that God continues from the very, the very beginning to send prophets to his people, but they rebel against his prophets and the message that his prophets are giving, and they choose something else in lieu of what God has instructed to the point where they, to your earlier point, uh, they're, they're sacrificing their children, you know, burning them, bringing them into the fire about things that God had not commanded, nor did it enter his mind. There's a principle there for us and that God has prescribed how we are to worship him. And so if we worship him in a manner that he has not prescribed, we're, we're no different than, than these people because we're worshiping him in a way that he's not commanded or it's not even coming to his mind. Yeah. So if we're outside of God's ways, if we're going after our own ways, chapter 10, verse 23, it's not for us to de determine our steps. It's to follow uh, God's ways. It might be. Yeah, Chris. I'll take a crack at what you were asking before. Um, good. If, uh, if I have someone who's not being faithful to God and I can't, um, I can't get through to them, uh, the difference between me and God is that he um, provides uh, daily, he, he provides options. He, he provides them choices every day. It may be that I'm not the best person to deliver that message. I am commanded, just as Jeremiah was, to deliver the message, but it may be that um, I'm just a part of the plan that God has for these people. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest that we uh, we may give up, I may give up on me talking to the person, mm -hmm. but realize that God has not, mm -hmm. and have faith that there will be other opportunities. It's not just all about me, it's, it's about God and his uh, multifaceted ways. So our responsibility is taking our own part and not worrying about the outcome. I probably didn't say that in the clearest way, but the, the idea certainly has to be that we, our desire is to make those efforts and then uh, leave it with God. Very good. Chapter 8 will show that this, these people are behaving in ways that you could, you just almost have to think this, it's utter madness. It's, just, it's depicted in a humorous way in verse 4. Do men fall and not get up again? Why do these people, why have these people not turned and repented? I saw one of Alan's boys, I think it was, running along one day, just basically full tilt. He stumbled, went down knees. It may have been full, full face plant, I forget. But with, I mean, in less than half a second, he's on his feet and it, there was no break in motion whatsoever. Even though, and the, you, you picture this and yes, no. And he's asking these questions that are just, it shows that these people are behaving in absolutely senseless ways. I almost, I almost 
titled this, I, I don't, it's not my job to title this, but if you were giving kind of a sense of what these chapters are about, I almost said like stupid animals. But as I'm reading these, uh, reading these uh, words, what I'm finding is actually the animals are the ones that are absolutely sensible and God's people are the stupid ones. And it's not just me saying that if you think stupid is an ugly word, like you know, some people do. God says it. Um, and so, but, but let's use the word senseless for now, because I think that uh, says what we're trying to say. In verse 6, no one repented. No one has, is acknowledging that what they're doing, their ways are wrong. None of them have asked, what have I done? In a realization and an acknowledgement like chapter 3 was calling for, that they had done what was wrong. And this has gotten to a situation where they're not ashamed. Verse 12, they're not ashamed because of the abomination, and they've forgotten how to blush. Now, where's the comparison with animals? So, in verse 6, they are, no one is turning. That's, so, repenting is turning. What are they like in verse 6 at the end of that? Everyone turned to his course. This is the way I'm going, like a horse charging into the battle. So get this picture. You have a horse. It's, this is a war horse, an absolutely amazingly powerful beast of an animal that's been trained. When you hear the sound, you go straight. You don't turn. It's you go straight. And that's the picture. So these, um, you know, and, once, and so once they've set off, there's no turning them. There's absolutely no, and there's definitely no stopping them. You, you don't stop a war horse. And this is the way they're pursuing their own ways. Jeremiah will say that he simply can't understand the behavior of these people. All of the other animals have the necessary instincts intact and functioning to act in their own best interests. The stork in the sky knows their seasons. All the animals know when it's time to migrate and everything that they're about. And yet... And at the end of verse 7, but my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. Um, how, 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 how pitiful. And in carrying this theme at the end of, verse, in, at the end of uh, chapter 8 and verse 22, he'll ask in much the same vein, when God is offering restoration and mercy... Why won't they accept it? Why are they refusing to be healed? He asks, is it because there's no balm in Gilead? Is that it? No, that's not it. Is it because there's no healing? No, it's because the patient is refusing the chemotherapy. And when you're dying of cancer, that's not a good plan. It's not a good way to go. But that uh, shows the state of the people. Let's go on to chapter 9 and see what we can say about that. What, what I find in chapter 9 is Jeremiah really is getting to a, well, a, a place of real despair. He wants to, he, well, I'm, I'm describing it this way, that he is absolutely consumed by concern for them. He wishes that he could weep night and day, but he just doesn't have enough tears to do it and not enough strength. Um, he wishes that he could get away and not have to bear the thought of all of this. It weighs heavily on godly people when people have gone astray. As it did on Paul, the constant pressure of daily concern for the churches. In verse 7, they forced God's hand to try to refine them. And you see that in the statement when he says, I will refine them, for what else can I do? 
Um, he can only pour on the heat and hope that the refining takes place among any genuine listeners. There's familiar words in verse 9 as well because he asks, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? What is the, what, what things? He says these things. For these things, he, he, they need to be punished. He pointed out their iniquity. He pointed out their absolute devotion to, 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 to falsehood. But when you come down to verse 13, why, is it that, why are things the way they are? The Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but they've walked after the stubbornness of their heart. They're going their own way. Remember, charging ahead after the bales as their fathers taught them. What's the solution to their condition? The way chapter 9 gives it, we've seen lots of solutions, all of them of very, uh, you know, very similar tenor. In verses 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that he knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises, oh boy, loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. The solution is you, you, they have to come again to know the Lord and to know what he desires, justice, righteousness, and to show loving kindness. Okay, about one more minute, and let's see what we can say about chapter 10. And this, this will be very quick because you've heard it before. If you've read any of the prophets, they mock the people for going after these idols. And when you see the contrast, I, this, is, this is absolutely amazing. They've, first of all, they, um, you have somebody that cuts up some wood and he takes it to somebody who's really good at carving and he pays too much money and it gets carved and it gets, um, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? It gets covered in bling. That's what I'm trying to say. And give away too much money for that. And what do they end up with? Verse five says, when they get done, well, let's say, read verse four. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers because it's not real steady. And... Uh, verse 4, so that it will not totter. They, this is what they're like, verse 5. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do good. They're like a scarecrow. You know, in The Wizard of Oz, the scarecrow was the one without brains. In Judah, it's God's people that, well, are acting like they have no sense and no, no brains. By contrast to the idols, you see idols that there's no reason to fear them. They are utterly powerless. They can do no good. They can do no evil. They are the ones that have they've been carved out of something. And um, verse 15 will say they're worthless by contrast. God, this is, seems to me to be a fairly deliberate um, well, a deliberate contrast that Jeremiah puts forward. He is not like a scarecrow. He's like a great king, sovereign ruler. And whereas the idols can't do anything that would cause you to fear them, he is 
the one who causes the whole earth to be in terror. And whereas they're powerless, he is all powerful. It is he who made the earth by his power. The earth quakes at his voice. Such things. Whereas those are creations of men's hands, uh, something that somebody has made, he is the maker, the maker of all things. And then uh, one that's maybe a little bit more nuanced, and uh, what you see in verse 15, they're worthless, a work of mockery in the time of their punishment, they will perish. And the contrast there with God is that, in verse 16, the portion of Jacob, the portion, by the way, um, is not like these. He's the maker of all, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so God provides a valuable inheritance. Well, that's absolutely all we have time for tonight, I think. Um, I appreciate you bearing with us as we're trying to gain some altitude. <laughs> see things from a higher vantage point, um, visit what needs to be visited and just can't be left out. Um, and I appreciate everything you've said in class tonight.